So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So as we move into the month of November, which is the month where we're having officer nominations, uh, last week we uh, looked at the first seven verses addressing the elders, and now we'll look at the next section addressing deacons. So once we get into November, that's the time where if you think somebody would make a good deacon or an elder and you would like to nominate them, go first to them and ask them if they will agree to be nominated. And if so, then bring those names to myself or to anybody on the session. And that's going to be the process for that. But it's helpful before we go into that, that you uh, dwell and meditate on the word and what the requirements are in the word for an elder and for a deacon. So we'll be focusing on the calling of the deacon this morning. So 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, and we'll read that in just a moment. But first, what is it that most encourages you to work hard, to put in a good day's work? If I ask you to perform a very difficult and a tedious task, what is it that's going to make it worth it for, your, for you, for your time and for your effort to perform that task? So let's say I ask you to do something that I would never ask anyone else to do because I love it so much. What if I ask you to mow my lawn for me? Okay. You go out on a record heat day and you mow the lawn while it's 90 degrees and sunny. You work hard. You get it done. You almost die of heat stroke, but you get it done. So it's okay. Now I come out and I yell at you. And I said, don't you know how to mow the lawn right? You did a terrible job. You would not feel well rewarded for your efforts if I did that. At least I'm guessing. Imagine, though, instead I came out and I calmly said, I promise not to yell at you for your work. Okay, maybe that's a little bit better, but it's still pretty bad. No one's going to want to work for me if I behave or reward you in that way. But if I promise to be nice and reward you with a meal or with money, suddenly the work is slightly less awful. The better the reward, the more willing people are going to be to do the task. Well, Christ has not asked his laborers to work without the hope of reward. First Peter 5, 4 says that Jesus will reward his elders. Likewise, deacons are promised rewards for their faithful service in this passage in verse 15. For the deacons who serve well, Scripture promises a good standing and confidence in the faith. So with great spiritual service also comes great spiritual blessing. And that blessing is not derived purely from the efforts of the deacon himself, but the faithfulness of Christ in rewarding his deacons. So because Christ rewards, deacons must serve faithfully. So with that introduction, let's read 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 3. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
So walk through kind of three sections, three points in the text today. And the first I just have labeled as avoiding. So what is a deacon and why is it important that Paul gives qualifications to be one? Well, Paul begins his discussion of deacons in verse 8 with the word likewise. Now, in verses 1 through 7, Paul gave strict requirements for who can become an elder in the church. Deacons are similar in that they, too, have high qualifications that they must meet in order to serve. The deacon is also similar in that it is an office of leadership within the church. And you you may have noticed that Paul never really gives strict qualifications for someone to serve as a layperson. Now, of course, all of Scripture is concerned with how we live holy lives and how we grow and how we live in the church. But in the entire New Testament, there are only two continuing offices in the church, the elder and the deacon. And that means that both carry with them an authority and a leadership. Deacons, like elders, are ordained with the laying on of hands to set them apart for the office. And we see that pattern established by the apostles all the way back in Acts chapter 6. So go ahead and turn to Acts 6 for a moment. So Acts chapter 6, and we'll read the first seven verses. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So in those verses, we see that a problem had developed in the early church. Some of their needy members were not getting what they needed in order to live. So there was a need for a group of men to handle those physical needs in the church so that the apostles could be focused and freed up to do the work of preaching ministry. Now, the message is not that the apostles were too important or that the need wasn't a big deal. The problem needed to be addressed. But if the apostles handled it, that meant that it took them away from their primary duty. So they needed spiritual servants so they could continue to focus their efforts on preaching. And so what we see is that the office of deacon was brought into being. And in those verses in Acts, the qualifications were that the candidate be of good repute, and full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And so they chose seven men who fit the bill, and they ordained them. They laid their hands on them, and they prayed over them as a sign of the passing on and imbuing of authority for their task. 
So our deacons today actually carry that same authority that has been passed down in the office from the apostles. And we also see the result of the formation of this first diaconate. Did you notice verse 7 in that passage? It says that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So when deacons assist the elders biblically, the result is a well-functioning church that bears fruit. A healthy diaconate has a tremendous effect on the elders and their ability to perform their roles well. So if you understand the importance of the diaconate for the health of the church, and that it is also an ordained office, then the strict qualifications for office suddenly make complete sense. And that is why a deacon must be dignified in order to serve in the office. He must be worthy of respect and honor. He needs to be noble, and when it comes to serious matters, he needs to be serious. So this first requirement of being dignified is very similar to that first requirement for the elder to be above reproach. And they carry very similar meanings as well as really summarizing the commands and requirements that follow. In other words, the rest of the section on deacons is explaining what it means for a deacon to be dignified. So Paul begins the explanation of the deacon's call to be dignified with three negative commands. First, the deacon must not be double-tongued. If you stop and you think about that word, then it really makes sense what it means. Picture somebody with two tongues that can both speak on their own. One tongue is saying this while another is saying that. The idea is of really conflicting speech. Being double-tongued is speaking out of both sides of your mouth. The double tongues say one thing here and then the opposite later. They flip-flop on ideas and beliefs, so really they're unstable. They speak well of someone to their face, but then they go behind their back and they slander and they gossip. And really what they do is show themselves as untrustworthy. They may make grand promises, but then they fail to come through. They behave in one way at church, a different way at work, and then perhaps even a third way around friends and family. The double-tongued man is entirely untrustworthy and unreliable. Therefore, if someone exhibits this evil behavior, he is in no way fit to serve as a deacon. Not only will they fail to obey this command, but they will likely cause severe damage to the health of the church. Well, second, the deacon must not be addicted to much wine. A man who is prone to drunkenness shows his lack of self-control, and he opens himself up for all sorts of problems and evils. Now, the word addicted, it can also be translated as being given to or even devoted to. So if there is pride in one's ability to drink, then there's an obvious problem. It can't be a hobby or a pastime to engage in drunkenness. Furthermore, we know drunkenness is in and of itself a form of idolatry. It is the worship of self and the worship of pleasure. Now, we can take this too far in the other direction. Having a drink is not in and of itself sinful. In John 2, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for the sake of his stomach. So just like anything else that God has given us as a blessing, the problem is in the sinful human who takes it and becomes idolatrous with it and abuses it and misuses it. 
So the problem is that when alcohol is misused, it can cause some serious issues. When someone is drunk, they are willing to do things that they would never do sober. And obviously that can cause severe problems in the church. Being given a drunkenness shows a lack of self-control and wisdom that excludes a man from the office of deacon. Elders cannot be drunkards, and neither can deacons. The third requirement is that the deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Now, this is something that was also listed for the elders. The heart of the deacon cannot set personal gain above the good of the church. They are to be servants, not swindlers. So a good servant is one who does not get rich from his service. A deacon is, his, is a servant, and therefore he must not be working for earthly treasures. And this is also important when we consider many of the main duties of the deacon. There are traditionally three areas assigned to the diaconate, at least in the PCA. They are tasked with the management of the building, with mercy ministry, and with the budget. And all three of those duties involve the handling and the management of money. So the deacon must deal with money frequently. So the reward for a deacon who serves well is not physical or monetary, but spiritual. Christ rewards his deacons by not but but not by allowing them to help themselves from the church's funds. They are tasked with responsibly managing the funds of the church in order to facilitate ministry and to show mercy to those in need. In other words, the duty of the deacon is to give money away for the sake of the bride of Christ, not to take it wrongly. All right, so that was the point, first point, and it was mostly avoiding negative bad things. So the next point is testing. So experience is something that is very important in any office. No company that's looking for a new employee looks for the least qualified and the least experienced candidate. Rather, employers look for those with experience and the know-how to get things done. And that's why Paul requires that the candidate for deacon be proven before he enter the office. And he lists two primary ways in which the deacon must be proven. First, the deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, this is another way of saying that he must understand and profess the gospel clearly. Now, when the New Testament uses this word mystery, it refers to something that was not revealed in ages past, but has since been made known. So there may have been hints or prophecy about a given topic, but maybe not in clear terms. But in nearly every New Testament example, this word mystery is explaining the revealing of the gospel through Jesus Christ. Now, it may refer to different aspects of the gospels or to whom it is being preached to, but it's always about redemption in Jesus. So Paul wrote this letter to Timothy when he was stationed at the church in Ephesus. Now, the Ephesian church was a mostly Gentile church. They were not Jews. They were once separate from the promises of God and from salvation. But through the gospel, those who had been far off have now been brought near to the gospel, near to God. So the Gentiles used to walk in the ignorance of their sin and rebellion against God. But now the mystery of the gospel has been preached to them and they responded in faith. And it is the faith that the deacons must hold fast to. 
A deacon must stand firm on the core principles of the faith or, is he, or he is not qualified to hold the office. He must be resolute in professing his faith before everyone or he is not worthy of the calling. And with this requirement, we also see one of the main differences between the duties of the elder and the deacon. The elder must not only know and profess the faith, but also be able to teach it. The deacon is not required to be able to teach. But he is still expected to know, understand, and hold fast to biblical doctrine. That does not mean he has to be an expert in every way in theology, but he must understand all the foundational truths of the word. In other words, he cannot be a complete novice in his theology. So if there are two men, one of whom knows his theology and one of whom does not, that does not mean you take the one who is good at theology and make him an elder and the one who isn't a deacon. The deacon needs to know his stuff too. So the difference is that he isn't required to be skilled in teaching those truths, but he is nonetheless expected to understand the truth. And mercy ministry in particular, it demands that the deacon understand the gospel clearly so that he can minister to those who are sick and who are needy. And he also needs to understand theology well enough that he himself does not slip into any kind of error. And the surest way to prevent heresy is to know and to understand the scriptures well. Matthew Henry says that the practical love of the truth is the most powerful preservative from error and delusion. So the best way to hold fast to the mystery of the faith is really just to be a student of the word. Well, second in this section, Paul says that the deacon must be tested first. And while not necessarily clear in the English, this is actually a command. And so the command that the deacon, the command is that the deacons be tested first. But what's not clear in that testing is the way in which they are to be tested or by whom are they to be tested. Well, the verb is in the passive voice referring to the deacons. So they are the ones being tested. And if it was in the active voice, it would be Paul telling us to test them explicitly. So it is still possible in the passive voice that we are the ones doing the testing, but it's not clear. But what is clear is that the deacons are the one passively being tested. So really, that means we have three possible options here. First, the Lord is testing them through various difficulties and trials in their lives. Second, the church and or its leaders are to test and evaluate whether they are fit for service or not. And third, is really a combination that the Lord is testing them through the trials in their lives, which the elders are to then recognize and determine whether or not he is worthy of the office through his life and testimony. Now, I do prefer that kind of combination third option, that the Lord is working and the elders are working. Okay, so that's how the testing takes place. But what should the test itself look like? Well, commentators love to debate on what that means. Some take it to mean that the leaders sit down and they closely examine a candidate for office, potentially even with an exam. Others think this just refers to looking into the life and the testimony of the man over time. How has he handled trials? How long has he been a believer? But still others take this to be a probationary trial period of training in which a man becomes an assistant to the deacons for a time to see if he is cut out for the office. 
And to be honest, you may have noticed Paul does not specify what it means in the text. And so I think that all of these options are possibilities. The leaders of the church need to examine candidates carefully to ensure that only godly men enter the office. That is the principle we know for certain. And so that examination needs to include not just how he behaves and what he professes to believe at that moment, but whether his past agrees with what he says or not. The Lord gives the necessary trials and tests in life for the church to determine if a candidate is, in fact, blameless. Again, we're not looking for perfection here, but rather that he meets the requirements for the office and has a godly character. When we go back and we put all of verse 10 together, I think what we see is a very strong statement. First, Paul commands that the deacon be tested. A command implies some sort of human obedience on the reader's part. Therefore, the church has to do the testing in the ways that we have already talked about. And if in examining the candidate, he proves himself blameless, then you are to move on to that second step. And the second step is another command. Paul commands that we let them serve. So if they are tested and found worthy, then we elect them to serve as deacons. So really, we can summarize this verse as follows. You must test the candidate to see if he is blameless. If he proves blameless, then you must let him serve. So on the one hand, we have very specific instructions in these commands. On the other hand, the minutia of how we are to go about this examination process seems to be left up to the wisdom of the church leadership. So, in other words, if Paul wanted us to require every deacon to be an assistant to the deacons for, say, two years before becoming a deacon, I think he would have said so. If we're supposed to have a written test for every deacon, I think we would have a command. Paul gives us the larger principles and the major steps, but he leaves those smaller details of working them out to the Christian liberty among the church leadership. And some understand this passage is speaking directly to the entire church. In a sense, the whole church is involved in the electing and the nominating. But remember that this letter is actually specifically addressed to Timothy. He was in Ephesus operating as the de facto leader of the elders. So these directions were first and foremost to the church leadership and not to the entire flock. And so while the whole congregation has a role, The examination and how it takes place is up to the elders of the church. And I believe that is reflected well, actually, in our denomination. In the PCA, sessions have the freedom to go about this examination process in whatever way they think best addresses the situation in the church, as long as they examine and install deacons according to Scripture. I think the most important thing for any session to do in examining a candidate is to test them to see if they hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And really, that one requirement actually summarizes everything else we've just talked about very well. So has the deacon been a professing believer long enough to display a deep and resolute, sincere faith? Is he ashamed of being a Christian or does he readily profess Christ before the world? Does his character meet the requirements for this office? Is he a servant? Perhaps even most importantly, does he love the Lord and his word? Those are the questions that are most important 
when examining a deacon. Let's move into the final section of the text in point three. Under managing. As we arrive at verse 11 in the passage, we see something very interesting that may have even caught you off guard. When Paul was giving directions for the elders, there was nothing directed to the wives. But here we see that the qualities of the wife are part of the examination for the candidate or for the deacon candidate. So there are a lot of different views about this verse. Some theologians argue that it is not referring to the wife at all, but to ordained deaconesses. They argue that since the Greek does not include the possessive there that the English has, it must refer to female deacons. But that does not actually prove anything one way or the other. And those in favor of this view of deaconesses often point to Romans 16.1, where Phoebe is called a servant. And that's that same deacon word used there. But again, that doesn't actually prove anything. Paul calls himself a servant of Christ in many places. And we know for certain that Paul was an apostle, not a deacon. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Timothy is also called a servant. But he was a teaching elder, not a deacon. Epaphras is called a servant in Colossians 1.7, but not one modern translation or theologian tries to argue from that one verse that he was a deacon. But because of the effects of feminism on the church, this verse has become a point of contention in support of this whole concept of deaconesses. So furthering the argument against that idea, verse 11 does not call the women in question servants. That deacon word is nowhere used. And if that is what Paul had meant, he could have just taken that servant word, that word for a deacon, and just used a feminine version of it. But he didn't. So for those reasons and more, we can be very certain that Paul's talking about the wives of deacons and not deaconesses. There's one more small argument against this, though, that others have argued that it was not deaconess requirements, but qualifications for a group of ladies who help minister to widows and orphans. And that's mainly based on chapter 5 and verse 9. And there it talks about enrolling godly widows into this group for ministry purposes. But there's no reason to connect that enrollment with these qualifications in chapter 3. So by far the simplest solution for this verse is just to take scripture at face value. Paul has been outlining the requirements for the office of deacon leaning up to verse 11. And he continues afterward on that same topic. Therefore, verse 11 must be part of the requirements for a deacon, not introducing a new group or what would have been a brand new concept at the time, deaconesses. So the question then is, why are there requirements for the wives of deacons, but not elder wives? And that is a good question, but unfortunately, one we don't ultimately have very clear answers to. And I'll list two possible answers. There's a lot more possible answers than this. And I don't pretend to have all the answers to this question, but I'll give you two. First, I believe this shows a seriousness to the high calling of deacon. Sometimes we behave as though deacons serve in some kind of lesser office, but really, biblically, I don't think that could be further from the truth. So not only is this office crucial for the health of the church, but it is so serious that even the wives of deacons are called to a high standard. And the second... Because of the nature of mercy ministry, budget, 
and service. Deacons sometimes see the worst of the church's failures and they deal with difficult and messy things. And oftentimes they are engaged in helping their husbands meet with widows or meet their needs. So in some ways they can see some very difficult things. Therefore, it follows that the wife must be ready to encourage a discouraged husband and also to handle what she has seen and heard with wisdom and with discretion. And again, I'm sure there there are a lot of other reasons, but those are what come to my mind right now as possible answers. But really, at the end of the day, we just have to trust that the Lord knows that the wives of deacons need these requirements to help them and their husbands and the church. So all of that is the introduction to the fact that the wives of deacons have requirements that they must meet in this text. The wives of deacons must be dignified, just like their husbands. Now, above reproach was the overarching term that included all the other qualities for elder. Dignified is a word that summarizes everything else for deacons and their wives. The wife of the deacon must also be worthy of respect and godly. Paul further qualifies what it means for the wife to be dignified with three descriptions. First, she must not be a slanderer. She cannot speak poorly of people or gossip or in any way harm the church and its ministry with her words. She, like everyone else in the church, we're all called to this, must only speak when words will build up, edify, and encourage those who hear us. Second, she must be sober-minded. The ministry is a weighty calling with many difficulties. So she needs to understand how serious her husband's call is and assist him and the church in the best way she can. And third, she must be faithful in all things. So similar to being blameless, this does not mean that she must be perfect, but she needs to be trustworthy. If she takes on a task to help her husband, she needs to be reliable. Trustworthiness and being dependable are important in the wife of a deacon. So to summarize, the wife of a deacon must be a mature believer who is striving to love her husband, her family, and the church out of a love for Christ. All right, everybody take a deep breath. We're done with that section now. So now that we've talked about the really tricky bit, let's get back to the actual deacons. So just as it was commanded for the elders, deacons must be the husband of one wife. And again, if you don't know, that can also be translated as a one-woman or a one-wife man. And the idea is complete faithfulness to love and serve his wife with a total commitment, not to seek any kind of physical, emotional intimacy with any other woman. If he cannot love and serve his wife faithfully, he won't be able to serve the church faithfully either. And similarly, we also see that deacons must manage their children and their household well. And again, we see a requirement that was true for elders carried over for the office of deacon. The office of deacon is not for men who didn't quite make the holiness rating required for elder, and so they then settled for deacon. These standards for godliness for both offices are essentially the same. And the principle for this requirement is the same as it was for elders. If a man cannot serve and lead his own household, how will he do either for the church? The family is that proving ground for the ability to lead, love, and serve. And again, the expectation is not perfection, but faithfulness to the task. But far from requiring men to never mess up, 
In a way, I think it almost expects the opposite. And that may sound odd. But part of leading and managing a household well is understanding that you will not be perfect or right all the time. That you will fail, in other words, at times, and sin at times. And it's very important for the health of the family that the head of the household models the full Christian life. And that includes the fact that he will still sin and fail, but that when he does, he repents, confesses, asks forgiveness, and strives to grow in holiness. We can't expect our kids to know how to confess, apologize, and grow in the faith if we don't model that for them. They have to learn it somehow because repentance is not a natural thing, and the world definitely isn't going to teach them how to do it. So a deacon has to be the type of husband and father's father who models by walking by faith. A man who lives by grace and models that to his entire family is a man worthy of the office of deacon. And that leads us well into the final <clears throat> portion of the text in verse 13. Now I want you to see the grace and the blessing in this passage. I want you to know that there is tremendous blessing in being a deacon. But really, this principle holds true for all of us in some sense. And here's the truth. Serving Christ faithfully leads to the Lord's blessing and reward for you. Sometimes we have this wrong idea that it's wrong for us to look for any kind of reward in doing good as Christians. And the false idea goes something like this. You don't deserve a reward for doing what you're supposed to be doing. But for those who are in Christ... It completely goes against Scripture to think in that way. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The implication of that verse is that the Lord will not fail to reward his laborers for their work. In Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, the master says to two of the servants, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, of course, even the best of our works are still imperfect, and they are still in some sense entangled with sin. But that doesn't mean our good works or service cease to be good works. If that were the case, none of us could ever produce a good work in our entire life. Speaking about our good works, this is what the Westminster Confession says in chapter 16. It says that the Father, looking upon our good works in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So here's the question. Why would our good works be treated any differently than our souls? If you are united to Christ and you have been washed and you have been cleansed by his blood and you stand as perfect before the Father. In the same way, your works have been washed by the blood of Christ and offered to the Father. Not as the imperfect works you did, but as complete and perfect works through Jesus. So he didn't just save you in a sense, he also saved your works. And because of Jesus, both you and your works are beloved by God. We are called to pursue holiness and opportunities to serve. So far from being wrong for us to seek reward for our service, I would argue you must be seeking reward in order to serve well in the church. 
But here's the catch. You better be seeking your reward from the Lord and not man. And therein lies the difference between seeking reward in a good and an evil way. Deacons must be holy and qualified because they are the chief models. They must be the chief models of what it means to be a servant in the church. They must display humility, dignity, and love for the bride of Christ. And they do not work fruitlessly. The Lord has promised great blessing and glory and even some rewards in this present life. Paul says that deacons who serve well gain a good standing and gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So the church needs servants, yes, but it really needs holy, dignified, and godly servants. So church, look for those men and pray for God to raise up more. Men seek to be those servants. It's not an easy calling, but it is a worthy calling because Christ set up the office. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you take care of your church. That you raise up men to serve it, uh, to protect it, to guide it. Um, but it's not by their efforts, it's by resting in your grace and seeking your guidance. So Lord, we do thank you for your care for us. We do pray that you would raise up men worthy of this calling. Men worthy of the task of being a deacon. It is not an easy one. At times it seems very difficult, the life of a deacon. And yet you have put your blessing upon it, not just for the deacon, but for the good of the church, you have put your blessing upon it. So, Lord, we pray that you would raise up men, put them in the office, and allow them to serve faithfully for many years here. Lord, build up your church here. Minister through us. Help us all to serve, knowing that as we serve, as we pour out our heart for others, as we love others, we do not do so without the hope of reward. That is not by our merit alone. It is through Christ. So help us to give him praise for that. We ask all these things in his name.